Santa. Let's find out something about him. is Chris J. Jarmick. Um, poetry is a job like many others. In some ways it is more difficult. It's, it's self-created. I believe that a poet is not merely one who writes poetry, but one whose dedication to poetry fits into their private and public lifestyle, and one who advocates for poetry in a way they believe it to be valuable and meaningful. We may not all promote poetry in the same way, but by God, we adore it. We simply observe what we notice and filter it into something beautiful, like one's favorite paragraph. Good poetry requires craft and the knowledge and observation of sound, culture, identity, society, space, and language. Chris J. Jarmick is a poet. Our paths have crossed many times, Chris and I, uh, in many ways over many years. Boy, I got aged real quick. Uh, we were curators. Oh. <laughs> we were both curators of poetry at the Wordsworth City, um, Seattle City Council, hosting various venues of an extended length of time, burning word events at Washington Poets Association, the Poetry Posse at Little Red Studio. That was fun. Literally. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Literally reading poetry and having Aerolis above you and jazz. Ooh, yeah. And we the poetry posse. That was cool. And we did it for a long time. Um, we mixed noted Northwest jazz instrumentalists and poetry. That was another cool thing. And much, much more. We have weathered together. Currently, Chris has by far the most complete poetry calendar in the region. It's called Pi. And you look it up, it says poetry is everything. And you can find poetry from Spokane to Vancouver down to Portland. And he updates it weekly. So you can look by the day what poetry is going on in the town you're in. And I'm not joking. Look it up. His picture's all over it, by the way. Uh, Huh? Well, just go look. Poetry is everything. One word. Poetry is everything. Google it. Okay. And the first time I ever did or heard of a person writing a poem a day the way Tom did this year was from Chris. Christopher, oh, a couple months ago he was across the street at the Watcom Museum. For their ice thing, okay? Poetry, frastic. You heard that word again. It's a good word, okay? Christopher J. Jarmick.
I won't kiss you. I won't kiss you. Okay. Have my water over here. So anyway, thank you, everybody. Appreciate you being here. You're welcome. Home Starter 301. A good start is what's important. Finish later. <laughs> Home Starter 257. I tell too much, yet you miss the point. So I must tell too little. <laughs> Home Starter 1517. I must say more than the obvious but not so much that you have to turn away. It helps if I add some soothing balm, which perhaps will keep you wanting more. Tight rope walker. I want to be a tight rope walker, balancing precariously high above the crowd. I want to be a tight rope walker, dashing, almost falling, slowly, then quickly, Juggling, thrilling, teasing, balancing precariously high above the crowd. But you expect that from a tight rope walker. So I'll be a poet instead. <laughs> Big dots. Flo and Eddie walked into a bar and Dick Dale showed them a surf guitar riff but they knew they had to get to Pomona. It was a dream they had. Look, the waitress winked. I've got some new shag carpet at my place that needs to be broken in. She was ahead of her time. I knew there was no place I would rather be. No, wait, there was one other place. I needed to get there. I could do it this time. The top was down on my car again, and I raced along Pacific Coast Highway at that perfect mid-60s point in time. You know the intersection. I pulled over at Zumi, at Zuma and saw the girl with the polka dot bikini. I floated across the sand to her and could not have been more smooth if I was peanut butter on the roof of Annette Funicello's mouth. Mm. I might have been. Anyway, I became the dots for a while. So thanks for having me here tonight, and thank you, Poetry Night, and of course my old friend Dobby Norris for inviting me here. Um, I'll be doing poems that are in my book on the CD, a few that were published elsewhere, some brand new ones, um, plus a little bit later I'm going to do a special uh, tribute to one of the very best. Poem starter 1,521. Since clouds, metaphorically and literally, are everywhere, let's look through them, celebrate the ordinary. Not an ordinary poem. Ordinary things. Write about ordinary things, everyday things, so we take less of daily life for granted. So we take less of daily life for granted. Write of folks spearing soggy, spongy pancakes, drowning in sticky, corn-syrupy sauce in a loud, busy restaurant where a family of six overwhelm a waitress who wishes she has stayed in college and gotten a real job in a high-rise office building with her own desk, anything other than being a waitress, being pleasant to six unruly kids and their dad. 
I'm a waitress at Denny's, she told her father on the phone. It was the first time they had talked in over two years. Dad was right. She married too young. The no-good bum left her in the middle of the night. She was glad she didn't have the baby, though. She was sorry it upset Dad so much, but she was glad she didn't have the baby. What would she have done with a baby on her own? She should have never dropped out of high school, ran away from home, believing in lust and love, young, wild, stupid, taking for granted they would make a decent life. He would be loyal to her, not get drunk or ever hit her, stay with her through thick and thin. Daddy was right. Her life would be too hard with someone like him. He wasn't good for her. Dad was sorry he got so angry and that he didn't send money last time she had asked. He would send her some money, pray for her, have everyone in the church pray for her, and keep her safe and happy. She would be welcome to come home, could have her old room back. It would be much better now. But she was just calling to tell him she loved him, wasn't mad at him any longer, don't need money, not coming home... But you could visit, Dad. Must be lonely since Mom died. Come and visit, she said. There's room in the apartment if you want to stay a few days. Always room for Dad. And then she remembered. Puffed up clouds moving quickly across the blue sky, lying in the sun on the sand of the beach on the Jersey Shore. Not Asbury Park, Wildwood maybe. Smell of pine tar boardwalk, sound of seagulls, smell of copper tone. She dozed off to sleep. Six kids! How could this have happened? He wasn't going to have any. Now there's six, and he hated Denny's and soggy pancakes, and just this second, he could get up, go to his car, and drive. Drive as far as the gas in his tank would take him, and then just disappear. Because, become someone else. Someone without six kids. Someone with dirty, greasy hands working on cars in an old-fashioned gas station on Route 66 after work have a few in the run-down roadhouse. No one would know he was once a system analyst, once a computer geek, once a father of six kids with a big house in the burbs, SUV, soccer mom, wife, six kids he'd take to Denny's Saturday mornings as a treat, six crazy, screaming, wild kids, kids who would worry him Make him proud, disappoint him, love him, forgive him, take care of him, fill his coffee cup. She probably didn't like being a waitress, but he wondered if she knew how lucky she was being a waitress. Young, a life wide open as a Midwest plain, not yet stuck in a pre-made life. Yes, more coffee, more life. He'd be a better father, better father today, better father tomorrow. Six kids was a big responsibility, and they'd turn out to be successful and good people. They had their whole life in front of them, and they wouldn't have to be system analysts or waitresses at Denny's. His kids would be more than that. That's what he would make sure of. They'd be extraordinary, become extraordinary people, make extraordinary contributions to societies, and on special occasions, first purely nostalgic reasons. They could gather together at Denny's, eat soggy pancakes, be messy, laugh too loud, like an ordinary family might do. Poem Starter 1416. Here's to the curse that's made me a writer, enduring, grueling long hours of arduous mental hard labor, only another afflicted wordsmith truly understands, but are too busy inside their own heads to actually give a damn. <laughs> and this next one is uh, was one of the ones I did for Napa Rhymo Poem a Day, uh, and included several Sylvia Plath uh, line snippets and quotes, and altered slightly and whatever that make up the majority of the poem. Plath. 
Burn the ashes of all the peripherals. Were you the sad Hamlet with a knife clutching the voice of Daddy too tight as you ran from the halls of ossified discipline and dangerous tidiness and splattered into collages of depression? Let's pretend we had insight, knew it was a bad marriage, realized the death wish Rosenberg obsession was a clue, understood the necessity of digging deeper into madness and long, long scream of taboo subjects. How far down, down do you pursue grief through narcissistic sculpture gardens lady lazarus dying is an art some get all of the promised nine practice feline runs but alas not you not you (laughs) poem starter 1926 listen closely and you'll hear the sound of my life beating polaroid four My cousin runs in mock terror as I insist on kissing her in the way children will play. We ping-pong, we shake our heads at the antics of uncles and aunts who seem sillier than we. Grandfather plays the piano, delivers a full-blown performance of boogie-woogie, ragtime, and march. And then when it shifts into a soothing classical lullaby, we run outside to play tag. When the air gets cooler, the light grows dim, we realize time has not stood still, not even for us, who are having such fun. We all insist on coming through the door at once, and several of us pop inside. We enjoy slices of turkey and vegetables, but are too young to appreciate each detail. Instead, it is the warmth, the noise, the mood, and wondering when the ice cream with hot fudge will appear. I am years away from ever thinking to reach back and recapture these moments and words of Grandma's large house, the family gathering that influences and lingers long after the details I never knew well fade like memories and lives are supposed to do. Mm. Polaroid 6. The teacher refused to teach, ignoring my question, failing to explain, ignoring me. I feel embarrassed. At night, my father yells, calls me stupid, then lazy. I cry without tears, not knowing what to do, yell back, and struggles that will last decades begin. Near bedtime, my cat contentedly purrs because I pet him. Jealously, I stop. Key. We stand watching the little piles of bones the dog never buried. She wanted me to see this and understand. I nod my head. I am ready, perhaps. We walk out through the woods, back onto the path over the running creek, wide enough we have to jump to the other side, scramble up an embankment and into the tool shed, where I notice on the workbench a hip bone. I look at her. She smiles. It's important that I understand. She takes out a small box covered in dust, opens it with a key. She takes out a velvet cloth. Slowly, she opens it. There's a handle to a kitchen drawer. It is scorched from a fire. She wants me to remember. Bleak. The rest of your life will consist of depriving yourself of most pleasures, comprising your strongest beliefs, giving up many of your dreams, eating and drinking far less than you desire so you can live longer and participate in uncomfortable social settings which pass the time so you don't think too much about the aches and pains of your rotting body, that itch you can't scratch, that lost moment you can't forget, and that regret you refuse to bury. 
You tell yourself there is pleasure in chores, in accepting responsibility, in giving to others what you never had, in raising children to emulate acceptable behaviors. You believe rewards are present in the doing, in the journey, and in an afterlife you have faith exists. You are in fear of almost everything and haunted by your thoughts every waking hour. You escape through a maze of unbelievable truths and self-delusions. You realize it's best not to think bleak. <laughs> that was the sound. I said that was the sound of ironic laughter hitting the trees that no one heard in the forest of hidden tears beyond the land of hope and dreams on a rainbow of empty pot of gold good intentions wasted on spoil apathetic argonauts haunted by a golden fleece a thousand and one nights of eros now on an ark for forty days and forty nights with animals plotting mutiny that was the sound of a teardrop sliding down smooth olive skin, falling to ground, creating a breeze of melancholy before it splashes into a flood of forgotten memories that taste more bitter than all the war dead of the Germans whose families wonder what they died for as they sweep dirt from kitchen floors warmed with ovens baking strudels from tourists who are on too tight a schedule to touch Dresden art. That was the sound of madness, screaming quietly inside a skull shell, protecting the syrup of broken vows, promises, dreams that exploded into sharp shards of penetrating stairs dispensed by disapproving uniformed elders shaking bony fingers at huge purple irises, being overly sensual in a world of reactionary stimuli that sneaks up on you until you laugh. Listen. Home starter, 1,412. Discomfort is the seed of creativity. Distraction, its enemy. Dishonesty, its antithesis. More about father and son. You'll never amount to anything. Are you ever going to learn? Are you going to sleep all day? You can't go on like this. You need to go to church. You'll never amount to anything. Don't talk back to me. There are no free rides, pal. You think you have it tough. Who the hell do you think you are? You better straighten up. This is my house, my rules. You'll never amount to anything. This is no way to live your life. What the hell is the matter with you? When are you going to grow up? Turn the music down. What do you know about it, Mr. Budinsky? Not fair. Life isn't fair. You'll never amount to anything. Money doesn't grow on trees. Don't you care what people think? Stop being so selfish. Shut up and listen to me for a change. You're going to wind up in jail. You'll never amount to anything. I don't want to hear about it. You need to be more responsible, Mr. Smarty Pants, Mr. Know-it-all. Call me when you don't need anything. Goodbye. Hello? Is everything okay? Where are you? It's been too long since we've heard from you. I tried to call you, but the number was disconnected. You taking care of yourself? Well, you must be doing something, right? I don't know how you do it. I'm proud of you. You know how you can, you know you can tell me anything. I'm here to listen. Well, you know where we are. I love you. Not a poem about high school. This poem is certainly not about high school. That is the last thing I would write about. So this poem is not about high school. It's not. 
The jocks, the heads, the brains, the class clowns, the rejects, the black kids, three. The Asians, the new kids, the babes, the cheap dates, the juvies, the retards, and the invisible ones. The rich, the poor, the upper middle class, and the ones we knew nothing about, but we heard things. The polite, the goofy, the hairy before their time, the virgins, the promiscuous, the perverted, the beautiful, the handsome, the polite, the rude, the ugly, the carpenters, daughters, the fat slobs, and the one with cancer. The people who ignored me, the people who watched my back, the people who betrayed me, the people who picked on me, the people I admire, the people I fantasized about touching, the people whose lives I wanted, the people who I felt sorry for, and the people I thought about killing slowly. <laughs> the embarrassing moments, the act of cruelty, aggression, and teenageism, and the times too horrible are just far too dull to remember. This poem is certainly not one about high school. That is the last thing I would write about, so this poem is not about high school. It's not. <laughs> Palm starter, 16. Prolific poet ponders page of plentiful space. Pen pauses. <laughs> Palm starter, 911. Later, they decided to cancel history. They might have learned something from it, but it made them look foolish and was far too embarrassing to endure. <laughs> the good life. Ah, sweet nation of voyeurs, as we watch alternate realities and absorb all that is being sold, too numb to contemplate and think for ourselves, our children, nearly ignored, explore social media, racking up friends as if they were marbles, and plan marathon war games, gathering jewels and health packs without ever going outside to roll down hills, build forts, or play hide-and-seek. Our two income 40-hour weeks have become 60-hour weeks, so we can afford our global warming lifestyles and deny that it's not natural evolution. We listen to only things we want to hear, narrow opinions shouted hypocritically, augmented by colorful graphics, filling up our windows to the world, where we control the view from our massage-giving chairs and a remote that allows us to keep up to date with bickering housewives, enduring bad marriages and fabulous shopping excursions in New Jersey or Atlanta or Beverly Hills, or stage contests involving weight loss, while we dream of going to the ocean with a book and doing even less of what matters because the stress is killing us. It's hard to juggle all these things we need as we grease the wheels and hungry appetites of voracious corporate dinosaurs who play numbers games with resources, reinventing culture by creating food patents so they can collect royalties on every ear of corn created by robots from test tubes. Soon, every drop of water, every foot of rainforest will generate profit and loss statements, and we watch everything too numb to understand what any of it really means. We are safe and warm, our bellies are full, and we pretend life is better than ever, that those people begging with cardboard signs at freeway off-ramps aren't anything like us. They're too unstable or just too lazy to hold on to responsible jobs and want free handouts, and some of them aren't even homeless. The system works just fine for most of us, and there's even enough to take care of the leftovers so that we don't have to suffer by seeing them trying to make us feel guilty as if we had anything at all to do with their bad luck, laziness, or mental illness. i got to pick up my child before 7, get dinner at the drive-thru, and get home in time to watch my shows so I can unwind from this crazy day and maybe get a good night's sleep. It's important to stay healthy so we can do this a little longer than our parents did. Palm starter, 1,530. They say man has no natural predator. We do, however, have each other. 
As some of you know, I curate and host a lot of poetry readings, and I usually begin my readings with a birthday poet. I'd like to take a few minutes right now to do a particularly appropriate birthday poet reading for you. It goes like this. Born on March 23, 1939, in South Boston, our birthday poet was the oldest of four children. While he was attending his senior year at Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, in the autumn, his mother died in a car accident, and in the following spring, his father died of a heart attack. The day of his father's funeral, our birthday poet received a scholarship to Dartmouth College. At college, he saw a short film of Dylan Thomas reading a poem, and he was moved to tears, deciding he wanted to do that. But there were several detours. Eventually, he graduated college and worked mostly as an IT specialist for several banks and insurance companies. He married in 1968, had three daughters. The marriage ended in 1986, but he stayed very close to his children. His first poem was published in 1976 in the Boston Globe, but his dreams of being a full-time writer didn't happen. In fact, he had pretty much given up being a poet until he married his second wife, who encouraged him to take a poetry class with a famous poet, Galway Kennell in the early 1990s. And then he took his daughter to a local reading, hoping to share his interest in poetry with her. And he wound up getting more involved in the local poetry community. This led him to being part of the 1996 Boston Slam poetry team that traveled to Oregon to compete in the Nationals. The competition was filmed, and a documentary that featured him in interviews and performing was released in 1998. He published a collection of poetry and occasionally toured the country. The publication of his poem, Drunks, in the Boston Globe, along with his dedicated work at Alcoholics Anonymous, led to an invitation to speak in Spain at an Alcoholics Anonymous convention. He gave readings and talks in Spain, Germany, Ireland, and elsewhere. As he retired from his IT work, he relocated permanently to the Pacific Northwest in 2000 with his wife and began attending local open mics. He published several collections of poetry, was a mentor to hundreds of people through his work with Alcoholic Anonymous and his involvement in the slam poetry community. Many of you probably know who I'm talking about. The Bellingham, the Bellingham community was very generous to him, and he considered this gathering one of the very best in the country. Anyway, I met our birthday poet shortly after he arrived in Seattle at an open mic reading at Third Place Books in Ravenna, and immediately knew he was one in a million. Our friendship grew, and I was able to feature him at both smaller poetry readings I organized and at the Washington Poets Association Burning Word Festival on Whidbey Island, introducing him to several people outside of the um, slam poetry world where he was already a legend. When I got married to Teresa in 2010, he read a special poem during our wedding ceremony. As his health declined, I was able to organize several special events where he, as usual, touched the hearts of everyone who heard him. Our birthday poet is, of course, Jack McCarthy. He left us on January 17, 2017. During his last year, he published the poetry collections What I Saw and arranged, this is so cool, for the publication of another collection of poems and essays called Drunks and Other Poems of Recovery. Jack joined Alcoholics Anonymous in 1962 and as he as he said, several times stayed with the program and remained sober for more than 40 years except for one night in 1972. He reached out to others throughout his life, helping people whenever he could to battle their addictions and demons. I thought I would share something he wrote 
a short essay that was never published, something he never got to read to the public. It's called Marbles. Marbles by Jack McCarthy. Sometimes guilt is an appropriate first reaction to the realization of all the wreckage we've caused. Sometimes guilt is the dues we pay for our unwillingness to change. And sometimes guilt is just an ego trip. When I got to AA, I was filled with guilt. I knew I wasn't the world's worst sinner, but I really thought I might have been God's biggest disappointment. So that when I got to the end of my fifth step, my reaction was, is that all there is? I couldn't believe I was so small time. It was humiliating. Always we tried to struggle to the top of the heap or to hide underneath it, says the step book. If I couldn't be the best, I was damn well going to be the worst, the black sheep. No way I wanted to be middle of the pack. That had been my attitude throughout my drinking. Later, when my kids were growing up, I noticed how all the kids on the street wanted to wear the same brands of clothes. They wore school, school uniforms in the daytime, self-imposed uniforms outside. I particularly remember alligator shirts. Everybody had to have them. This seemed to be the norm. There was a discrepancy here. All the kids on the street wanting to be alike, and me. If I can't be the best, I'll be the worst. Was I that different from normal people? I took the question to an AA guru, asked him to explain to me the difference. Two words, he said, dysfunctional family. This is how you get attention in a dysfunctional family. You have to be the best or the worst. Around Boston, there's a saying about recovery. The first five years, you're collecting your marbles. The second five years, you learn to play with them. The third five years, you find out they were never your marbles in the first place. The conversation with the guru took place in my third five years. Jack McCarthy. <clears throat> okay. So, this one was inspired by and written for Jack McCarthy. New star in the night, full of grace. In his memory, hold the hand of fallen brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, drunk, addict. Help them to their feet. Look them in their eyes. Tell them there is help. And though they may not believe they can be forgiven, tell them there is hope. Love exists. They are human. They matter. And most important, there is light. The darkness tells us so. The opposite of love is doubt. Our enemy is fear. Everyone falls, everyone hurts, everyone forgets. You only need to imagine you can dance with the mu and the music will get louder. You only need to listen and the words you need to hear will be there. Today you won't believe it, but your worst fears will make you laugh tomorrow. Some of you gifted with grace carry on the powerful message. All we share are these brief moments in time. If they are dark, soon comes the light. If they are bright, reach out for the hand of another. Pull them out of their shadows. Tell them the whole truth. If they are listening, this is what they need to hear. If they aren't, perhaps the next time, perhaps the next messenger will be the one to simply remind them that all of us, the addicts and the normies, all do life one day at a time. The poetry of drunks is sobering. 
Recovery girl for Daria. Recovery girl takes her first few steps on the tight rope stretched over Relapse Canyon. Loved ones hold their breath for her, needing to help, knowing they must not. There's little confidence inside Recovery Girl. She must trust words from an invisible coach, ignore how naked, how utterly alone she feels, and she must fight with every thread of her soul the irresistible urge to look down. Palm Starter, 1,429. The sound of nothing wasn't heard, but the meaningless of the moment mattered. I'm skipping toward the end here. Okay. Palm Starter, 71. What is never said between the I love you, have a wonderful day, and that looks great on you, should never be considered. <laughs> the Hacker Focky. <clears throat> Hold on. This is a little hard to read. The Hacker Focky, with apologies to Lewis Carroll. Twas Google and the old sea Yahoo did yawn and Twitter on the net. All vixens were the baby boos and our lilt crocs confet. Beware the hacker fuck, my son, with pics that lie, posts that kill. Beware the cyber bull. Facebook shunned the criminy slacker will. He took his firmal mouse in hand, long search for nerdist foe. He scoured, distracted he by eBay ads, YouTube cats devoured. And in his unprotected viewing, the hacker fuck with tools of shame attacked with virus spewing and IM'd as it came. The fermal mouse went clickety-click, zero one, zero one, track and track. He quarantined and took its head, message boarding frack. And hast thy newbie slain, hacker fuck? Emoticoms to you, dear boy. Oh, yang po dave, acru bichet, they glee text in their joy. Twas Google and the old sea yahoo did yawn and Twitter on the net. All vixens were the baby boos and our lilt crocs confet. Palm Starter, 1,430. At both ends are beginnings. And this is for the, oh, the most influential poet of the modern age, undeniably Seuss. Oh, the places I would go and the things I could do, all the things I could think just to gaze upon your sneeches, touch your yurtles, or smell your green eggs and ham. My mouth waters when I think of your ying or you in the gox with the yellow socks, that mop-noodled finch. Oh, what I would do with your nasm of basm if given half a chance. Nothing can prevent this obsession I have, not Bipper or Skipper or Dinwoody, Slinky Stinky, or any of the other Fudnuddler brothers, not the single files of Zunian Zucks, the south-going Zach, Sidwick, the Moose, the Queen of Quincy, or even the mayor of Whoville himself can control this zizzer zazzer zuzz of a wocket I feel that surpasses my longing for little Lola Lop, the right side up song girls, or even Yolanda Waldo Jorensen. Now don't get all Miss Fuddly Duddle on me or tell me I'm no better than a peeping Nurkle or I belong with Van Vleck the Vipper of Vip. Horton the Elephant and the Maisie Bird told me in no queet Krigger or Klotz that my pre-pelf brew was made for your Sneelock and you can count your zummers that I won't be denied. I'll count one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, win the butter battles and cooperate with Sam I am. But I'll hold your verooms, caress your yurtles and walk Woombus and whoop with you down Mulberry Street if it's the very last thing I ever to Williger do. Thank you. I like dead poets. I don't have to be nice to dead poets. 
If I'm bored with her poems, I can close the book and stop reading. They will never know. They do not ask me what I think of their poems. I don't have to give a drunk dead poet a ride home. They won't vomit in my car. They don't need cab fare. I have not been stuck with a dead poet's bill. I have not had to make excuses for a dead poet's behavior. A dead poet has never stolen a phrase or idea from me. I like dead poets. Someday, I will be a dead poet too. <laughs> and finally, poem starter number 27. Slinky walks downstairs, rests. Waits. Waits. <laughs> Waits. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> 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 